Hello and welcome to an exclusive podcast brought to you by Video Oncology, an open access video journal that provides healthcare professionals with trusted and up-to-date information in oncology. Today, we're delighted to be joined by Heather MacArthur and Kevin Kalinsky, who discuss the latest updates in immunotherapy presented at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. Welcome to Breast Cancer Sessions with VJ Oncology. My name is Dr. Heather MacArthur. I'm the Clinical Director of Breast Cancer and Komen Distinguished Chair in Clinical Breast Cancer Research at UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. Hi, I'm Kevin Kalinsky. I am the director of the Glenn Family Breast Center at Winship Cancer Institute at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. So why don't we start off talking about the Keynote 522 uh, data that was presented mm -hmm. just yesterday. Yeah. So even just to review just the design of Keynote 522, which has really, I think, been a game-changing study for patients in the operable setting. These are patients who had uh, T2 greater positive breast cancer, who received um, carbo, could be weekly or every three weeks, uh, along with weekly taxol, uh, and then followed with uh, uh, an anthracycline and cytoxin, which was given every three weeks. And then patients also got pembrolizumab in the neoadjuvant setting, went to surgery, and then continued on said therapy, meaning either got pembrolizumab alone mm -hmm. uh, or um, continued, uh, uh, if, if they were randomized to not get pembrolizumab, they continued with that. And you know we'd seen previous data suggesting that there was this improvement in PCR, also showing this event-free survival, this was approved, and then this led us to see these updates here at San Antonio. Right, so about two years ago, we first saw the initial analyses showing an improvement in pathologic complete response in favor of the addition of pembrolizumab to chemotherapy of about 14%, so a massive delta. At that point, the event-free survival data was really immature. There was only about 15 and a half months of follow-up. So there was a deferral by the FDA regarding the approval. And since then, we've seen the updated analyses uh, diminished delta in pathologic complete response, so about 7.5% uh, now with further follow-up. Um, but what was really exciting was the more mature event-free survival data. With more than three years of follow-up, there was a delta of almost 8%, so 7.7% at three years in favor of the addition of pembrolizumab to chemotherapy. So I agree with you that that was a game changer and in the United States at least became a standard of care for our patients with high risk triple negative breast cancer. Yeah. And so at this meeting we saw some further analyses. Um, we saw um, uh, uh, we saw analyses looking at various subsets to see if those uh, findings really held up across subsets. They looked specifically at the node positive population versus the node negative, stage two versus stage three, for example. And really the benefit with the addition of pembrolizumab was seen across the board, or at least that was my take. Yeah. I don't know if that was your interpretation. Uh, yeah, I think the same take. I think also, you know, no additional unexpected toxicities. I think that this is a, um, a profile that we're increasingly familiar with, you know, the thyroiditis and then some of the rare side effects that mm -hmm. we can see with pneumonitis and things like that, but that were uncommon in this study. So I think I think that's right across all the, the with the additional analyses it just continued this theme that you know the patients who were eligible for the study 
you know, across these different subsets we're benefiting. And I think you touch on a really important point, which is toxicity, because a lot of these um, checkpoint blockade immune uh, drugs are new to us in breast cancer, are new to a lot of people in breast cancer, and there have been concerns about immune-related adverse events. And what we saw in the updated analysis this week was really the majority of toxicity issues arise from the chemotherapy backbone in the neoadjuvant setting. There are relatively few adverse events in the adjuvant setting. Um, looking at the immune-related adverse events specifically in the adjuvant setting, interestingly, 6% approximately in the placebo arm versus approximately 10% in the pembrolizumab arm. So a very small increase in the adjuvant setting, but it is important still to be vigilant about delayed toxicity since there have been reports of immune-related adverse events even a year after last exposure. So it really requires um, multidisciplinary vigilance in ensuring that our patients aren't experiencing what can sometimes be devastating and lifelong adverse events. Yeah, I fully agree with that. Some of those toxicities can be really subtle and really nuanced. Mm -hmm. And sometimes even when patients are getting chemotherapy can be hard to discriminate. Uh, really what's giving that particular patient whatever the side effect is, whether it's fatigue or something else. So it's always important, I think, just to be mindful of that, mm -hmm. uh, just um, so that we can appropriately treat them if this is a immune-related adverse event. Mm -hmm. But a really exciting time to be treating breast cancer and triple yes. negative breast cancer specifically yeah. because these are really unprecedented improvements in cure rates. And I think the tasks going forward will be to try to figure out or tease out who needs more yes. and who can get away with less. So yeah. can we further optimize the chemotherapy backbone for patients who are at lower risk? There are a lot of questions around patients who achieve a pathologic complete response. Do they need to continue the adjuvant pembrolizumab? Mm -hmm. Of course, this study was not designed to ask and answer that question. So we certainly have our work cut out for us yes, in the future. Yes, completely. If you look at those curves and you see the patients who had a PCR with or without pembro, you know, you, they look similar to each other, but that's the way the study was designed. And this was asked during the question answer session. And you know, uh, right now the standard is just to continue the full year of pembrolizumab, but it is a question about whether we can de-escalate in that mm -hmm. particular population. Uh, and I also think, um, you know, in terms of the chemotherapy that patients are getting, also this continued question about which patients need carboplatin, do they need full escalation of the chemotherapy that they're receiving, but this was the way the study was designed. and. Uh, you know, really in the U.S., as you mentioned, has become a bit of a standard of care. Right. And in those high-risk patients who do not achieve a pathologic complete response, yes. we're going to struggle to figure out whether we should be co-administering Olaparib in our germline BRCA uh, patients and uh, capecitabine for residual disease, which was also a standard of care. And of course, those drugs were not permitted on the Keynote 522 study. And so, again, a lot more work to do yes. to figure out the most biologically rational strategies for these high-risk patients. That's right, that's right. And it'll be interesting to see also in this residual disease setting, just kind of looking ahead, other questions that will be answered, you know, the role of uh, antibody drug conjugates, where that will come into play, role of ctDNA. Later on in this meeting, we'll see some of those initial results from McTurn and his group. Mm -hmm. So I think there are lots of things uh, that are still yet to be answered. In Absolutely. This, uh, this ever evolving field. Absolutely. So, an exciting time to see this data in the curative intent setting. We also saw some data from the metastatic setting yes. in the form of an update from the Keynote 355 study. Mm -hmm. 
that was a study in which patients with triple negative breast cancer uh, were treated in the first line setting with chemotherapy plus pembrolizumab versus placebo. As you'll recall, the chemotherapy backbone options were paclitaxel, nabpaclitaxel, or a combination of gemcitabine with a platinum. So it was physician's choice chemo with uh, pembrolizumab or placebo. We previously saw progression-free survival data. At this meeting, we saw an update in the form of overall survival data. What was your impression of that, Kevin? Yeah, so I think the data remained consistent with what we'd seen previously. You know, the utilization, uh, at least in terms of the FDA label and the approval, has been for those patients with a combined positive score of greater than or equal to 10%. That's the assay we utilize for pembrolizumab as opposed to, um, for instance, SP4142 for tizolizumab. But again, in the frontline setting in the U.S., it's just approval for pembrolizumab. So, you know, it was nice to see this continued benefit of OS where we saw um, this benefit of about seven months or so uh, in the, pa the patient population who had CPS score that was greater than or equal to 10%. Uh, and then also the data that we saw here was the breakout by those who had CPS of 10 to 19 versus those who were 20% or greater. And what was nice to see is that the hazard ratio was similar between those two subgroups. So really it looks like those patients are benefiting in terms of their survival, which is meaningful right. for our patients with triple negative breast cancer. So beyond a combined positive score of 10, consistent benefit no matter what specific range was interrogated. Mm -hmm. And really exciting to see again, overall survival advantage of seven months, which is very consistent with what we'd seen in the Impassion uh, 130 study, a very similar overall survival benefit. Of course, uh, that indication was withdrawn by the sponsor due to some post-marketing issues. And so pembrolizumab is currently the only checkpoint blockade drug that's FDA approved for the treatment of metastatic triple negative breast cancer. Mm -hmm in combination with chemotherapy. But I agree with your point that there has been tremendous consistency. And historically in a population with a median life expectancy of 12 to 18 months to see a seven month improvement in overall survival is really unprecedented and, and exciting. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that discriminates since we've been talking about the impassion 130 study was just this difference about allowing some of the early relapsers in there, right? So patients, uh, from completion of their operable therapy to starting uh, on keynote uh, 355, they had a, you know, must have been at least six months or greater. And it did, you know, in terms of previous reports, seemed, uh, if you look at that forest plot, when you look at the taxane versus the carbo uh, gem, that maybe those patients who got carbo gem, maybe they were doing a little bit worse, but also that was being enriched for those patients who are early relapsers. So as you'd mentioned previously, the drug is approved with either a taxane or with carboplatin gemcitabine. That's right, and it seems that you still drive benefit with that chemotherapy backbone, even if you'd received it previously in the Correct. curative intent setting, which yeah. I, I agree is an interesting yeah. observation. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, one of the questions that was asked during that session is, uh, you know, what to do if now we're giving pembrolizumab in the operable setting, and then what would we do if a patient then recurs, you know, whether we have data and it's really kind of a data-free zone. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, whether we would use that cutoff of about like 12 months or so just to make sure they weren't relapsing quickly within completion of their operable um, checkpoint inhibitor. But I think it also just kind of demonstrates how the move, like the field just moves very quickly. And we just try to catch up from other data to help inform 
what to right. do. Right. At the present time, we don't have any data that a change in the chemotherapy backbone will reinvigorate a response to checkpoint blockade or a change in the checkpoint blockade antibody administered can reinvigorate chemotherapy. So uh, a lot of work to be done because uh, those immune therapy resistant patients will be presenting in the not too distant future. Yes. We did see another study in the metastatic setting that I thought was Mm -hmm. interesting, Um, the Nimbus study. That was a study that took patients with both hormone receptor positive and triple negative breast cancer who had a high tumor mutational burden, so greater than or equal to 10, with the idea that those patients are more likely to have antigens presented to which the immune therapies could respond. And those patients were treated with nivolumab and a CTLA-4-directed therapy in the form of low-dose ipilimumab. Mm-hmm. What was your impression of that data? Yeah, I mean, you know, the study, small study, but still met its primary endpoint. I think the other thing that was interesting about that study is when you look at those patients who had TMB that was greater than or equal to 14%, that that response rate was high, it was in the 60% range, right? Which is really uh, notable. And that included um, for those five responses, right? Um, about th- I think it was three of those had hormone receptor positive for two negative disease, which we think, okay, historically, this is a subtype that's not terribly responsive to immunotherapy, but it shows that TMB, we can really see some nice responses. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think, you know, it was quite an interesting study, albeit small. I think there are other questions that kind of remain of what, how would this perform if we were to be looking at just giving checkpoint inhibitor? You know, what if, uh, how should we best define TMB? Mm-hmm. And I think they have some other translational medicine efforts ongoing, including mm-hmm. circulating markers. But mm-hmm. I, that was interesting. What did you think? Very interesting. So those five responders had very durable responses in the swimmer's plot and you know, it is a chemotherapy-free regimen. So hearkening back to those early monotherapy checkpoint blockade uh, studies where when administered in the first-line setting, atezolizumab or pembrolizumab conferred responses of about 25% in the first-line setting, indicating that there is a population of patients who can derive benefit from immune therapy alone. And as we talked about earlier in the context of Keynote 522, the majority of the toxicity comes from the chemotherapy backbone. So this was, again, to me, a reminder that if we give rational combinations of checkpoint blockade in selected populations, that, that those could be very effective strategies. Yeah. Yeah. So, so very provocative, very hy- hypothesis-generating and provocative. Yeah. But you're right, this issue of cutoff point for tumor mutational burden is a, an ongoing challenge in the field. Mm-hmm. So other things, other things at this meeting that uh, you're looking forward to, some other smaller studies that are kind of on your radar, uh, anything else that's of particular interest to you? Absolutely. So tomorrow we will be seeing the results of some of the arms of the Begonia study. Mm -hmm. This is a study uh, with multiple arms looking at paclitaxel together with checkpoint blockade in the form of dervalumab plus various other combinations. And we're going to see some of those results tomorrow, and I think that will be very interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm also very excited to present our own data, Mm -hmm. looking at combination of pembrolizumab together with radiation, 
prior to neoadjuvant chemotherapy for triple negative breast cancer. And the idea there was that we would essentially borrow the boost dose of adjuvant therapy and administer it earlier on in the course of the disease. So while the tumor is still in situ, radiation of course causes inflammation, but it also causes physical destruction. So the idea is that by breaking down a tumor into tiny fragments that might be more easily digested by immune cells and co-administering immune therapy, therapy that you would have a more robust anti-tumor response. So we're going to be very excited to um, present the results of that study called the PEARL study tomorrow. Mm -hmm. yeah. What, what yeah. about you? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, this question of AKT inhibition uh, and whether or not uh, in combination, you know, there's some good preclinical rationale for that. Uh, so we'll see how that study kind of bears out and, you know, in the context of having some toxicity that we can see with AKT inhibition. So we'll see some data with that. Uh, also, see, we'll see some updates from ISPY2, study there from our German colleagues, just in terms of uh, um, giving uh, um, in a HER2 positive population, mm -hmm. uh, HER2 target therapy with IO. So there's a lot of interesting things that are there. But as we're speaking, I can't help but think about how, you know, a couple years ago, the breast cancer field was really, um, in its infancy in the context of IO compared to other solid tumors. And here we are now where we have approvals in the metastatic setting and the early stage setting. There really has been a shift that's happened relatively quickly. The pace is really exciting and it's really an exciting time to be treating breast cancer, especially those triple negative breast cancer patients for whom we've relied on cytotoxic chemotherapy until a couple of years ago. So now to have options for them that actually improve life expectancy is, is really exciting. Yep. Well, it's so great to sit down and talk with you, <laughs> yes, Dr. Kolinsky. And thank you for joining us uh, with BJ Oncology and Breast Cancer Session. We'd like to thank Heather MacArthur and Kevin Kolinsky for sharing their thoughts on the latest news in IO from the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. If you have found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your podcast app, including Apple, Spotify, and Podbean, so we can continue to deliver expert-led content to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJ Oncology and join in the conversation. And finally, don't forget to visit vjoncology.com for all the latest updates in the breast cancer field.